I'm Ken Hemmings, and he is Chris Lang, and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris. Thanks, Ken. As always, it's a pleasure. We were chatting beforehand about the consistent feedback received from members uh, about the idea of you providing them with some personal mentoring. Uh, Given the level of interest, how are you planning to handle that? You know, Ken, to be honest, I was quite surprised at the level of interest by some of our listeners in wanting to set up a basis for personal mentoring as part of an ongoing program for simply learning more about commercial property. And I guess I it makes sense. I mean, we've reached the bottom of the interest rate cycle, residential property is already on the move, and people are wanting to get in on the ground floor, as it were, and, and, and get themselves positioned with the properties in place, ready to ride the upturn, uh, particularly if we've got a change of government about to occur. And so I see the package as a combination of one-on-one time as well as home-based training. And I think that's important as well because you can only do so much by answering questions and sometimes there's got to be a little bit of homework done with guidance to make sure that there are no gaps in, in each person's understanding. So in addition to that, there'll be time together as a group by way of regular teleconferences and as people have requested an annual workshop or a a conference. Now that format seemed to be reinforced by several comments after last week's podcast and I must say I particularly like the suggestion of this program being called the 2K Club because it's upfront about the level of investment and it also portrays that members will be receiving something rather special and there'll be a bonding and a sharing that is not otherwise available in the general course of of learning about commercial property. So in essence, that's how it's come together. So if Property Briefings members are are wanting to join the 2K Club, uh, what do they do? Well, what I've been doing during the week is putting together a list of everything that I feel could be included as part of the proposed mentoring program. And so what I'll do is at the bottom of this podcast, if people go to the website propertybriefings.com, you'll be able to fill in your details so that I can give you that uh, complete summary of everything that will be included and so you can gauge the value and the worth of it and in that way you'll be in a much better position to decide whether that's the sort of thing that you want to pursue, whether you do see it as bringing value to you for what's involved and in the process feel free to leave comments as people have done over the past few weeks to add to the package if if you feel that's necessary or to pose specific questions about how it will work and what it'll mean for you and the benefits that you'll be able to derive from it. Okay, back to our podcast. Maybe it would be helpful for you to provide our listeners with a quick overview of how to see the 
commercial property market going forward? Well, Ken, perhaps the best place to start would be with the CBD offices around Australia because that arguably is the, the largest market, uh, both visibly and, and financially. And it's fair to say that the CBD office vacancy levels appear to be rising in each of the capital cities, but for different reasons. In Brisbane and Perth, and to a lesser extent Sydney, it's occurring because of the decline in the mining investment and the GFC, and that's more with Sydney and, and its large proportion of financial institutions there. But Sydney also has a lot of space coming on stream with the Barangaroo project around the harbour. And while a lot of that space might be pre-committed, there are some major corporations moving in there. So there'll be a lot of backfill space, which will add to the, the vacancy level in, um, in the Sydney market. Now, the Melbourne vacancy level will rise, but that's as a result of strong demand and that encouraging developers to commence some speculative projects for the first time, really, in over a decade. Now, vacancy levels are obviously going to drift over the next 12, 18 months. But at the moment, the Perth vacancy level for CBD offices is around 7%, but the market is softening dramatically with the pullback in mining company expenditure. And also, there have been several projects that are coming on stream. So that's expected to move through the 10% mark reasonably quickly. Sydney is already at around about nine, and with the extra space coming on stream, could well get up to around 12 or 13%. Melbourne's hovering around 10, with some space coming on, on board uh, with the uh, speculative projects that have been undertaken. But equally, that to a large extent will be offset by the stronger demand that Melbourne has over the other capital cities. Uh, Brisbane is currently around 13% and likely to increase slightly on that. Just to keep everything in perspective, you need to understand that for a, an office market to be in balance, you need a vacancy rate of somewhere between 55 and 7.5%. In other words, you need enough space there to allow tenants to orderly move around as they expand and contract and business needs alter. So if we're saying seven and a half is the upper limit, if you've got a vacancy rate of, of nine, 10, 11, it's probably not a concern, provided you have a strong or reasonably strong underlying demand for space. In other words, what is being built will be mopped up reasonably quickly. Now, that's probably not gonna happen in Brisbane, less likely, in Perth, and the amount of space coming on in Sydney would mean that that vacancy will probably hover within all those capital cities above the 10% mark for probably the next two or three years. So on the leasing side, CBD owners will need to offer some incentives to lure tenants in the short term. But on the sales side, overseas investors are underpinning a strong demand all around Australia because unlike Australians who seem to feel that things are bad and, and we're struggling, and I know there's a lot of political hype and, and 
point scoring going on. But there was an interesting article this week by Saul Eastlake, uh, two pages, fundamentally explaining how the Australian economy compared to probably 85% of the rest of the world is really in strong shape, reasonably low debt. I think our, our national debt is 28%. The average of all the um, European company, countries is 113% of GDP. And I think Japan is debt is 250% of GDP. So 28% Australia is not a basket case as everyone is trying to portray in the lead up to the election. So fundamentally, the problem is that Australians are feeling poorer because things are not as buoyant, although with the influx and increase of activity in the housing market and prices rising there, once again, the net worth of families will increase and therefore the feeling of, of being more comfortable will increase. So perhaps let's have a quick look at the industrial market around Australia. In Brisbane, probably the, the biggest issue they face is access to finance because of the decline in the uh, mining sector and, and things going off the boil. In contrast, and that's probably more with prime space, in contrast, the secondary space uh, coming on the market as a result of uh, the struggling manufacturing sector. But this is actually offering for on-the-ground shrewd investors the opportunity to uh, purchase that sort of property at, at a, a discounted price and probably trick it up and add value and then offer it back to the market as a better product. So whilst the vacancy rate remains low, uh, the softer demand is, is expected to constrain rental growth in the short to medium term. Now, Melbourne is still the home to large competitive industrial users and it contains a wide range of end users from logistics companies to investors, developers, owner-occupiers and tenants. And the, the outlook for business, as I said, remains strong. And while manufacturing has been soft, it's principally been because of the, the dollar, but with that falling back, the manufacturers are likely to see a boon, boon in their activity. Now, it's been a slow start to 2013, but the second half looks as though it's going to improve because there's actually been a large influx of population from Queensland and, and Western Australia, and Victoria's net immigration has been positive, which, going back four or five years ago, was the opposite with an exodus to mining states. So private investors are being attracted to what is comparatively high investment yields and also there's a simple investment profile when you get to industrial property it's you've got a single tenant it's a simple building you generally have a longer lease and you've got low ongoing maintenance requirements so in many respects people gravitate to that and with the current low interest environment it also means that there's strong demand particularly at the lower end for owner occupiers where they might purchase an industrial property in their super fund and lease it back to their, their business. If we move to Sydney, over the next 12 months, you expect to see some slight growth in, in rentals for prime industrial property. 
Land values have also been increasing over the past 12 months and it's probably the catched up owner occupiers that are strongest in the market at the moment, those that don't have to borrow heavily. Um, owner occupiers are also willing to pay good prices for land to develop their premises where they want it. And if you look forward, you can probably anticipate owner occupiers continuing to to buy land and to, to develop that. As far as uh, Perth, the economy is obviously contracted because of the mining sector, but the industrial property still seems to be performing reasonably well. The resources sector led to a number of construction and infrastructure projects, and what you're seeing is that the leasing and sales inquiries seem to be reasonably strong, uh, particularly for the better class of warehouse property. So, in summary, around Australia, the industrial sector is benefiting from structural issues such as the retail sector, which is providing a new business model as far as the clicks and bricks online retailing. I mean, traditional retailers will start to compete by setting up their own version of the online trading to reduce the number of retail outlets and moving more of their business into warehouses for dispatch after the orders have been placed online. So that then leads us to the retail. And it's third because it's not one that I really favour. The retail sector faces both cyclical and structural issues. Some of the cyclical issues are that the consumer confidence is down but improving. It's, it's certainly not deteriorating anymore. And the interest rate decline is certainly helping. I mean, after residential property, the retail sector is the one most affected by interest rate movements. Our employment is growing strongly in some areas of Australia, but it's shrinking in others. And the jobs that are, are gained and lost are not necessarily in the same location. And that means certain catchment areas for retailers are doing well and others are finding it tough going. Some of the structural changes that retailers have got to deal with is the ageing population because that's going to create challenges for retailers as they all strive for the dollars of the retirees. And unfortunately, retirees tend to gravitate more to services than goods. And unfortunately, they don't continue to live in the same geographic locations. They tend to, in retirement, move to the areas where they have holidayed and then tend to come back and spend short bursts where they used to live, where their family probably still are. The second thing in structural changes have been the, the internet retailing, and that's really changed the face of retailing for certain goods, and I think will continue to do so. But the I mentioned in the industrial, the new business models that are establishing themselves, the strategies where the stores are having an online presence, which is partly to drive people to their stores, but also to pick up those that prefer to buy online and, and then dispatch them from larger warehouse facilities that they've got. So I think as far as retailing is concerned, 
last year probably marked a turning point because interest rates were, were, were well and truly on their way down. The European Central Bank and, and the US Fed Reserve both announced measures, measures to restore confidence. As far as China's concerned, the concern is that it has fallen from a, a growth rate of 10% or better about five or six years ago, and it's now down to around about seven, seven and a half. But what people don't realise is that the Chinese economy over that time has grown by 40%. So if it is now 140% of what it was then and, and its growth dropped to seven, its production or, or GDP is actually higher in, in, in uh, dollar terms than it was five years ago. So while the mining investment might fall, the requirement of our goods and services and minerals for the Chinese expansion, which is still continuing, will mean that there will be continued growth in our exports. I mean, only this week there was an article uh, about how the Chinese cannot get enough of our naval oranges. And apparently the in the last two years, it, the export to China has grown fivefold so that we at the moment we simply can't meet the demand and our quality of, of oranges the naval oranges apparently far exceed anything else in the world so the growing uh, upper class in the Chinese are seeking these things that we take for granted so as far as I can see there is a going to be a continued demand but my concern with retail is that rents in the lead up to the global financial crisis reached above market and I don't think that as leases fall due you're seeing even now particularly some of the major department stores are negotiating rent reductions as, as the market review takes place and that will probably continue with most other retailers over the next three to four years. So I see retail is still somewhat fragile as I said, interest rates are down. I think we we may get one more 25 basis points, but I'm not yet convinced that will occur. So we're certainly, if not at the bottom, very close to the bottom of the interest rate cycle. And as interest rates go up, that will affect retail. So my choice would be offices first, industrial second, and a, probably a distant third for retail. Now, I understand we've talked about CBD uh, maybe um, next week, if you like, Ken, we can we can talk about suburban offices, which is probably more something that the small to medium investor would be seeking as a as an investment. So, what steps should they be taking now? If it were my money, I would be looking to buy a suburban or, or fringe city strata office or a small standalone building and looking to. Uh, subdivide that either if it's a whole floor into smaller tenancies or if it's got multiple floors into separate floors and I would probably be looking to take the longest fixed interest mortgage that I could because as I said I see this at the bottom end of the cycle we've got a change of government and with the amount of money that has been saved over the years as soon as the confidence switch clicks across, that money will start to come back into the economy, initially on personal 
items and then on investment items. Now you've got to think about it, that people have been saving since the global financial crisis on a week-by-week or month-by-month basis. However, when they spend, they tend to spend in lump sums. It might be playing catch-up with some household goods, bulky good items like televisions or fridges or washing machines that they've put off for a while. Then they'll start to upgrade the house. And then as they gain even more confidence and the economy starts to to move, as I believe it will during 2014, well, then they start to venture out and become a little bit more uh, risk tolerant and step into commercial property, particularly at the smaller end. So if it were mine, I would be seeking out well-let property and then locking in an interest rate over the longest period you can. Generally, you can't do that longer than the length of the lease. So you'd be at least looking for a three-year lease, ideally a five- or a six-year lease, so that you could lock in an interest rate over a fixed-term mortgage. What I'd like to do next week is to explore some of the opportunities available to the under-a-million-dollars investor because I sense a number of listeners may fall into this category. Are you happy to do that? Yeah, sure. Uh, We could certainly take a look at that part of the market, yeah. Oh, all right. Well, have a good week until then. And you too, Kent.